Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. What is our problem? What is the problem with society and what can we do about it? So Tim Urban, who writes the huge blog, Wait But Why, I mean, millions of people read his blog every month. He just wrote a book, What's Our Problem? A self-help book for societies. I happen to agree with him that this is a huge problem in society, the bifurcation of everybody's either on one team or another, and everyone just assumes that they're right and the other 150 million people are wrong. We talk about why this is a problem, the history of it, and Tim offers an excellent guide on what a solution could be. But I think it's more not just a self-help book for societies, it's ideas for how you and I can improve our lives and the way we think about the problems in our lives as well as society. I view this as a self-help book for me. This podcast improved me, but was super excited to have Tim on. I've been a fan of his blog for almost 10 years. Here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Is this your first kid? First kid. Rape age of 41. 41. So that's hard work. Yeah. Like I'm in my 50s. I don't think I could have another kid just because it would be too much energy for me. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I wouldn't, right now I have all this, like how many kids do you have? Well, three stepkids, two kids. So I had two yeah, babies. That's, that's a lot. Right. And, and it's like I, this right now I have all this energy and it's novel and it's so exciting. And I have all this like fatherhood to give. And I would not want to do this if I didn't have that. If I was feeling like this was like, I was like, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to father another kid. That would be really bad. Cause it's, it's not a small, you can just, yeah. It's a long term. Yeah, you can't arbitrarily decide to have a kid unless you want to just yeah. like leave the kid, like have the kid and then leave it. Right. <laughs> then you can some do people it. do that. I I I, yeah. I don't think that's the way I want to go, but you never know. Which which by the way, I will make this an odd segue into your blog. One of my favorite blogs, Wait But Why. You've been doing this blog forever. I'm gonna segue, I'm gonna connect the dots in a second, but you've been doing this blog like forever. I feel like I've been doing my blog since about 2010. How long have you been doing your blog? 2013. 2013. So a long time. And yeah. it's gotten hugely popular. And would you say that blogging, like people don't look at blogs as much anymore? Like when you started and when, and at that time, I remember very well, people were reading every blog post. And now I feel it's on and off. You know, I feel like when I started, 
2013, I was hearing a lot of blogging is dead. I feel like the the age of a certain, because also blog is such a broad word, right? It's like it's like online solo publication, basically. So there's a lot of different genres under that umbrella. But I think, you know, when they're saying blogging is dead, maybe that was for a certain type of blogger, you know, it, 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 they had gone down in popularity. What I was doing is like really long, in-depth deep dives into something. And it's just like to have that in the same category as like someone who's doing like celebrity gossip updates, you know, little short things every two hours versus me like every two months coming out with a big. So it's like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know like whether, I, I don't know what the state of like other blogging genres is. Um, I get the impression that if someone writes a deep dive today, it's, People are still still interested. I don't know. I, I get the you know. Also, I might have a skewed thing because I have readers now. So my readers now know me, and they're going to come read my thing. If I'm starting fresh today, I, I do think that the, the 2013 was a very good time to start what I started. Just I got lucky because it yes. was like Facebook was Facebook was like an incredible engine for like a couple of years. Uh, and now I don't know if there's any engine as good today to have a new writer's articles go viral as Facebook was back then. Yeah, I would say it's important to have like like you have a newsletter, like even an email list, and that's a that's the way people get exposed to like when you have new blog posts out. Yeah, exactly. It's like and and so it actually early on because you have to decide. You know, if someone gets to the end of a lot of people get to the end of your article, a lot of people don't get to the end of your article, right? And then a lot of people get to the end and they're like, that was good or that was bad. But either way, they're not coming back or they don't care enough a few people get there and they're like, oh my God, I love this writer. I love this article. I need more. You need to capture that person because they're still going to forget about you once they leave. There's, there's too much on the internet, right? It's, it's, and so that's, you have this one moment to like um, have that person follow you in a way that you can now remind them, hey, I still exist. Here's a new one for you. And then that's a long-term reader of yours. And so what do you, you have to decide what, what are you, what's the number one thing you want? And for a while I was like, Facebook has to be Facebook follows because again, people forget now because Facebook is totally different thing than it was. 2013, it was the only relevant social network. I mean, Twitter was minor. Facebook was, everyone was on it. It was, it was just the main thing. It was the coolest thing and it was worldwide. And then at some point, Facebook, I realized like it was like a six months in, I would post something. I realized I had to pay now to reach my own followers, which is, I'm not criticizing Facebook for that. It's the business. They should be getting, making money for it. But I realized, I was like, wait a second, I don't want to trust whoever's running Facebook in eight years. I mean, A, people, yes, Facebook could go out of style, but B, they could decide, you know what, now it's going to cost 50 grand if you want to reach all your people. And I'm like, well, I'm screwed. So quickly made a change and said email. Uh, email, and still, by the way, I still don't know what's going to happen, you know, how email can go out of style. But I, I said, uh, the first thing you're going to see is sign up for the email list. And that's what I've been doing since. And I'm very happy that I did that. Yeah, I mean that was probably the best decision I ever made was building an email list on top of my blog, which I probably started around the same time. The the email list and it and it worked out well because then you have a a permanent relationship with with your readers, no matter what platform is like the platform of the day. Especially if you're like me and you don't publish regularly, you know, if if it's if it's every single Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know. You know, like Randall Monroe, who does XKCD. I don't know if he needs an email yeah. list because everyone knows Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there's a new comic and people are going to go check it out. If I, I might yeah. publish something two weeks in a row and then disappear for six months. And what do you do during those six months? Are you just researching for, for the next article? It depends. I mean, yeah, for, for a really long, I, it, I, I've, uh, I've done some really big deep dives where it's, you know, the length of a short book. 
And other times I'm just, um, I, 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 you know, I try, I write a couple articles, I don't like them, and I go back to the drawing board, and it just takes me a while sometimes. And if you're a reader, it's really annoying to have to, like, check the site and refresh, nothing new. And it's like, instead, I'm just like, sign up for the email list, forget about me, I'll let you know when I have something new, and then I can just, boom, I can reach everybody when I'm ready. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the email medium. Since then, you've written a bunch of books. The latest one, What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. And I want to talk about that. But my question also is, why haven't you written more books? Like, because you do these deep dives, you have so many interesting posts about a variety of topics. Like, for instance, you could have written an entire book about Elon Musk just by stapling together some I posts. basically did. It's just on the internet. Oh, right. Yeah. That's right. It's an ebook on the internet. But it's you could have just said to Amazon, hey, make this a paperback also, like self-published it. No, 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 totally. No, I just meant, I, I also I did happen to make it an ebook, but I was just saying, I basically wrote a book and it's in blog post form. Um, and so I, I understand your question, which is like, why not just do books? And I think it's an evolving thing. I think back, I think when, honestly, with the Elon thing, I didn't think I was going to write so much. And as I got going, I, I realized this is, this. by the end, I looked at it and said, I think I just wrote a book. I didn't mean to. But I just wrote four really long blog posts that added up to 95,000 words. And then most recently, again, because I'm not good at predicting what I'm actually doing here. So like for this most recent thing, this is my first, I would say my first real book. And even this isn't a print book. Um, my first print book is going to be the next one, which I'm starting working on now. I, you know, I was thinking about it, by the way, if you did this as a print book, it would be a beautiful book. Like there's so many like great drawings. I, and, I, and... I might still, I've gotten so many requests for it. I'm like, okay, well, I did, I knew I'd get some requests, but I'm actually surprised by the number of people who have been like, I want a hard copy dude. And I'm like, all right, maybe, uh, maybe we'll do one. You know, the part of the reason that we didn't hear is because this topic felt timely. I've been working on it forever. I really wanted to get it out. And then it was already going to be like the summer. So if it had been printed, it wouldn't, it would be a few months away from coming out. And then we, we learned that because of, I guess, paper supply shortage or something, it was going to be more like the fall, like September. And I was like, absolutely not. I was like, you know what? Let's just go and publish this in February. And then we'll talk about a print book later, maybe. But like, let's just get this out there because I'm not waiting another eight months to get this out there. That's the problem with traditional publishing is that you got to wait like a year. You get your deal. The good thing about traditional publishing, like with your number of followers and, and the popularity of your blog and the popularity of your TEDx talks, you would get easily a seven-figure advance from a traditional publisher. The sucky thing about traditional publishing is your book. From that point where you get the advance, your book won't come out for a year and a half. My next book is not going to have anything to do with current events, right? It's going to be timeless. It's going to be about the universe and stuff. So there, I'm like, fine, go take it. I'll, it'll 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 appear in the world in a year and a half. This one is so specific. It's about current events. It was going to kill me. To, it actually, like, there's something really nice. One of the things that could, I, because there was no print book, I could put a book out in February, and there are examples, there are stories from 2023 in the book. It's, yeah. it's like, it's almost like a blog post. You know, you, you know the ebook, you know, takes like a month to get it together. So it's really fresh. It's like, it's like as recent as you could possibly be reading a book. Um, so this would not have been a good one to wait a year and a half for. It's like, it's right on the pulse of early 2023 at the moment. Yeah, no, you, your book's very timely because the topic of your book comes up in my house constantly, which is our society in, in the U.S. specifically, U.S. society is having some big issues, no matter what side of this you're on. And you, and you do, you really kind of build up the argument beautifully, but maybe kind of describe top level what your book is about and why people should be interested. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's something that, it, that was making me uneasy about my society. You know, and I think of, you know, I grew up in American society and it's not perfect, but it's great. You know, it's liberal. And I mean that lowercase l in that, you know, in that there's free speech and the government's never going to arrest you for saying the wrong thing. Um, and, you know, um, there's just, you. I don't know, I feel like it, it, it's, you feel like it's a very kind of, grown-up place in a lot of ways, even though, of course, America is not in many ways. But it just felt like um, it was, you know, I felt like I could trust the society for, for the most part. And that feeling was going away. Like, it was 2016, and I was just like, something feels weird. Like, I feel scared to talk right now publicly about anything to do with politics. What's up with that? Yeah. That's not how America's supposed to be like. And I wasn't scared of the government. I was, like, scared of, and, and the weird thing for me was that I was, like, scared of the people who I thought, like, we were like the people, I wasn't scared of, you know, I was like an Obama voter. I wasn't scared of right-wingers because I don't think the right-wingers had any power to do anything. I didn't care what, you know, if they, I was like scared of my, you know, people who also probably voted for Obama. And I was like, so this is what's going on. You know what, why? And, and, and then the media was just getting like worse and worse. Like journalistic integrity was just like just evaporating. And there was so much tribalism, like rising, like crazy political tribalism. And I was like, we seem to be like descending in some important way, like losing our grip on kind of stability in some important way. So that's what got me into this. And I was like, what, what's going on? You know, what's our problem? Like, what, why are we doing this? And then I had the second thought, which is like, the stakes are high right now because technology is continuing to explode. Like there's new paradigm shifts every year in some industry. And like, that's not going to change. We need to like be smart and wise and like be able to talk about stuff together and like make wise decisions and and I felt like we were going in the total opposite direction. I was like, I don't think my society can make a wise decision about anything right now. And so that that's what got me into it. And uh, and and it swallowed my life for six years trying to answer that question. You know, it's really interesting because I think like the pandemic accelerated this trend where, you know, like as my kids say it, silence is violence. So even when you don't say something, there could be a negative reaction against you. And And specifically, as you put it, there's two teams right? There's this kind of social justice team that has one menu. And then there's the other people who have another menu and you have to agree with everything that's on the menu of your team. And if you don't agree with like one thing, even people get angry at you. Like there, there's no liberalism where, you know, the, 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 the technical meaning of liberalism is, has nothing to do with liberal or conservative. It's this idea that a society can have many people who have many different viewpoints and in a politically liberal society, everybody gets together, argues it out, and then sort of decides on a compromise that some people are happy with and some people aren't happy with, and they move on to the next issue. And that's political liberalism. But now liberalism is sort of interpreted as, you know, you have to believe that everything that's under this banner of social justice is correct. Everything else is incorrect. You should be silenced if you're incorrect and I'm, and I'm oversimplifying, there's been similar periods where things have been the opposite, where if you're not like on the religious right, then you could be silenced also. There's, it, it's kind of this pendulum that goes back and forth, but what are you actually afraid of when you, when you speak or have an issue? So I think you're right. There's like this feeling that there's two teams, both are entirely sure that they're right. They're both scary if you're within that world to disagree with your own team. You know, people scare people are scared of their own team much more than the other team. But what I realized when you took a step back is I said, that's two teams playing one game. 
and there's a whole second game, which is what you just described, kind of classic liberalism. There's two games. And what's happened is this one game where these two, I call it political Disney world, right? There's heroes and villains. There's only, you know, our team is perfectly good and righteous and their team is perfectly evil and awful. And we're right about everything and they're wrong about everything and we're righteous, whatever. That to me is not reality, right? That's this crazy childish kind of way to view the world. And and to me, it seems like they're two different teams and they are, but they're really, they're both in political Disney world. They're playing one game. What I realize is that most people aren't actually down there in that game. That's like, a lot of people are scared of the people in that game, but most people are much more like, they're not exactly sure what they think, or even if they are, they don't try to silence people who disagree with them. They care about nuance and they want to, you know, they, they, they're open to compromise because every democracy is built on compromise. And I realized there's this whole second game that no one has a label for. No one, you know, people in that, in that want to play that game don't think they're all alone. They don't realize how many, that the majority of people wish they were playing that game. And that there needs to be like a broad pushback from game number two against game number one. And that includes every both teams that are, to me, kind of one really, in another word, in, in a way, they're kind of working together. Nothing was better for Donald Trump than the rise of like authoritarian wokeness. And nothing is better for authoritarian wokeness than the rise of a demagogue right-wing president like Trump. These are, they're, they're each other's best friend, right? And so even though th th that's not how they feel, that's what's actually happening. And here's the thing about it that really got me going was thinking that like, it's not like, you know, some people would hear this and say, oh, well, game number two he's talking about is all highfalutin and they want to talk about things. They don't want to actually get on the ground and make change. But the thing is, if you look at all these different statistics, the people in that political Disney World game, they're actually harmful to the causes that they say. The people in the, the, the kind of hardcore woke people, they are really bad for social justice causes. So the idea that you have to either reject or accept social justice is, is missing a, a huge distinction, which is that there's liberal social justice, which is the great tradition of the U.S. Women, you know, emancipation, women's suffrage, civil rights movement, gay rights, all of that is the product of liberal social justice, social justice movements that let leverage liberal tools that are pro-free speech, that persuade, they don't coerce, they, they get out there through campaigns of persuasion and they make huge change. And that's great for social justice causes. And then there's this other thing. I don't use the term woke very much because I don't think it's productive, it's too vague and it's loaded with baggage. So I'll say social justice fundamentalism, which is a whole different thing. And it calls itself social justice, but I think it's kind of the antithesis of liberal social justice. And I think it's not, a, and likewise, you know, people say, oh, the, you know, look at Trump, look how far right the Republican Party has moved. I don't think that's true. I think that actual principle conservatism is at direct odds with someone like Trump and that Trump isn't assaulting us with conservatism. He's depriving the country of principled conservatism, which we need. We, we need both principled progressivism and conservatism. So game number two, is actually the productive one that actually helps these causes that are actually, is actually good for the country. And that game is so scared into silence by game number one. And game number one likes to tell game number two people that, you know, we're the ones on the ground, we're the ones making change, but that's not true. There's no, that doesn't map onto reality. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. 
and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. I'm going to steal man your argument. So free speech is something you described initially as a social justice thing, but maybe not part of social justice fundamentalism. So what, what specifically do you think you can't say and I'm not holding you to this as a belief, but like, what's an example of something one can't say to the social justice fundamentalist for fear of being either canceled or blocked on Twitter or whatever? For, well, you really can't disagree with any of the tenets of the so, the SJF, social justice fundamentalism narrative. So the SJF narrative 
is treat it like the Bible in a church. And if you go into a church and you start saying, I don't like this passage in the Bible, and I actually think that this isn't true and this is wrong. I mean, look, I'm sure some churches are all about debating that, but in a lot of very hardcore churches, you're going to be kicked out. They're going to say, uh, no, the Bible is the sacred text here. So they're, the narrative, which is, you know, it's very extreme, right? It, it's extreme. And what I mean by that is they'll have an un, very unnuanced, very extreme, very one-dimensional depiction of society. So for example, they'll say, you know, any disparity of outcome. So there's more men than women at Google, for example, or this industry, um, there's, there's not enough uh, people of color in leadership or, or whatever, any disparity. One of the things that their narrative says is any disparity is only caused by systemic oppression of some kind. That's the only explanation. And secondly, the only remedy to that is through reverse discrimination, basically, right? And this is this is Ibram Kendi. This is straight, you know, his words. This is kind of his two of his main tenets. And that's it. And so, you know, if there's not a 50-50 gender at Google, the only explanation is that Google is a sexism problem. Google is, you know, a harassment problem, a discrimination problem of some kind against women. And the hiring process should be shifted so that it kind of forced into 50-50, no matter what. A, I, I don't agree with that. I think that's too extreme. I think that the, certainly discrimination is probably playing a role. And I think that perhaps hiring changes might be good, right? But there's a lot of different things that can be causing this. It's a complicated thing. Societies are complicated. Google is complicated, right? And people are complicated. And so I would say, let's go look at the more nuanced story. Now, my problem with social justice fundamentalism is not that they have extreme tenets. There's a lot of groups in society that have extreme tenets. And in a liberal society, they're all welcome, right? My problem is that instead of saying, well, we think this, and you think that, and you're wrong, and here's why. They don't say that. If I say, actually, I, don't, I think there could be other reasons than just discrimination, that there are more men than women at Google, they'll say victim blaming, misogynist. In other words, social that's kind of social penalties. I'll get smeared as a bad person. And so it's this kind of coercive tactic to shut down debate. I have a question there. Like, what if you say, listen, the population is 50-50, the, but the population of men and women at Google is 80% male, 20% female, which is what this guy wrote in his initial article about it. But that's because that's the breakdown of the population of men and women in the tech industry. So what, what if you were to kind of make an argument why Google has this disparity? It, 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 so I'm saying with SJF, there's no room for anything. They would, they would be saying, stop making, a, you're an apologist, you're a misogynist. You, you know, look, look at the reaction that happened. Um, and again, yeah. my, my point about that memo isn't that everything in it was correct. It's that the people I criticize in the book with, with regard to that memo are not the people who said this memo is wrong. Great. I love people who say this. Say this memo is wrong. Tell me why. Let's, let's debate. And I read so much interesting debate about it. My problem is with the people that said he should be fired for saying the memo, because that's totally different. That's attacking the person that's punishing a person for disagreeing with you as opposed to punishing their ideas, which is great. And every liberal society should be full of disagreement, criticism. This is what makes our discussions richer and makes us all smarter. So again, it's like, you don't even have to get into, forget what his memo said. It's like, it's like should he be fired for it? And so the, the other thing that I would criticize SJF for is it's also hypocritical. Like there's 60% of college students are women, 40% are men. You know, if that were reversed, the story would be colleges are systemically sexist against women, right? And there's discrimination and there's bad social norms and there's bad gender norms in society and bad messaging to women. But it's the other way. And, and there's no consistency. They'll never say, well, there's something wrong. You know, what, what are we doing against men? 
suddenly there's no problem. There's no discrimination. It's not symbolic of any kind of systemic discrimination. That's just how it is. So I, I would criticize any ideology on left or right or in any religion or any other area that is just hypocritical, that applies its stuff when it, you know, applies certain tenets and prescriptions when, when the story fits with their narrative and then it ignores the ones that don't fit with the narrative. But that's not even my big problem. I, again, there's a lot of ideologies I don't respect or I don't think are productive. It's that this one will try to ruin your life if you make the points I'm making. I'm lucky because I have an independent platform. If I worked at The New Yorker, or I worked at Harvard, or I worked at the ACLU right now, and I start trying to make these points, um, I'm probably out of a job. And that's my problem. Like, it's this this right. punitive nature of it, this coercive kind of like agree with us or else. That is not okay. I don't care. Again, I don't care if that's on the left or right. And why do you- why do you think that's happened? Um, I think it. I think you know. There's there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I get into you know a lot of different backstories in the book, but like part of it is because there's always ideologies. You go back to the '60s. I read a lot about the '60s in politics in the U.S. And there's ideologies always that want to do this. That want to not just have an extreme view, but punish anyone who disagrees. They they don't want to have to win fair and square in the persuasion game. They want to say, we're not even going to play that game. Our ideas are right. End of story. You, if you try to fight against the ideas, you're in trouble, right? There's always groups that want to do that. The question to me was, and there's always, by the way, there's always Donald Trump's out there. There's always demagogue people who want to play on people's worst instincts, who want to lie incessantly and kind of cheat their way to the top. And there's always people who would have loved to undermine trust in the election after they lost, right? So why is a demagogue doing so well now? Why is a political group that likes to bully, likes to scare people, why, in, into, into not saying anything, why is that group succeeding so much right now? And I think there's a few reasons. I mean, one is the general political environment has gone from, you know, general political hot button stuff to, to total hypercharged tribalism. And I think part of the reasons for this, there's a lot of, this is a you know a lot of reasons, but one big one is like, if you look at the 50s and 60s, political tribalism was distributed. And what I mean by that is some people, the parties themselves had a really like rich diversity. There were progressives and conservatives in both parties and everyone in between. So a lot of people were really, most of their ire, their tribal ire was worked up about the other guys in their party. They hated those people. Some people were not thinking about that. They were thinking about Republican versus Democrat, that they were really worked up about that. And then another group of people were most worked up about the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, or, you know, before that, the U.S. versus Hitler. And so they were, their minds were, their tribalism was on the national level. So you have a lot of tribalism still and a lot of division. It's just, in, it's distributed in whole different arenas. And what's happened since then is that lower arena, kind of the factions within the parties disappeared mostly because all the conservatives, because of a lot of reasons, all, you know, the civil rights movement kind of started, all the conservatives went to the Republicans, all the progressives moved over to the Democrats. So you start, you kind of that intra-party tribalism disappeared. And then on the top level, we just haven't had like a real, like a, as big a threat, foreign threat as the Soviet Union was in people's minds since then. And so those two arenas melt away a little bit. And what's left is this one hot political divide. We're left versus right. The good guys versus the bad guys, whatever it is. And then the media landscape has totally shifted. So there's a lot of explanations, but yeah. Do, do you notice that like when you talk to people, like I tend to be pretty neutral or at least 
you know, I don't feel strong enough about so many issues that I'm going to fight for them. But people who talk to me, it's almost like this chameleon effect. Whether someone's like right or left, people always talk to me as if they assume I'm the same as them. Do you find that also? Like, yes, people all the way on the woke left will just talk to me thinking, of course, James is a smart guy. I'm talking to him. He must be extreme woke left like I am. And the same thing, like people who are like super pro-Trump, far right, they talk to me thinking, oh, James is smart, must think like me because I'm talking to him. And so they assume that I'm like far right. And they never even like wonder because of, of course, uh-huh. he's not the other side, which is like a bunch of idiots, even though the country is basically 50-50 right now. Yeah, I, I think part of that, so again, to talk about hypercharged tribalism, well, what, is, what does that environment do where, when it's like there's this raging tribal divide in the country? You know, I'm sure if you went back to pre-Civil War, you'd find an, another raging you know, division. And the end of the 20th century, another raging division was going on. And then the, during the 60s, rage, right? That, that's not always the case. Most decades, it's not. We're in one of those right now. And when you're in one of those, what you're going to find is a lot of people in that environment either become really tribal themselves or they get real scared because most people are just not that disagreeable. Like they don't want to get out there and like disagree. They just, well, if someone's being real scary, sure, like I'll just stay quiet or pretend I agree with you. So what happens is you end up with an intellectual culture. You know, we talk about echo chambers. I think of it as echo chamber is an intellectual culture. It's a culture where disagreement is bad and it, to be part of the group, you have to agree. I have the opposite kind of culture, idea lab culture, I call it, which is the opposite. It's like disagreement's fun and being in the group has nothing to do with your specific views. We, we actually like when we disagree, it's fun, right? It's ideas are not sacred. And so when you have a hypercharged decade like we're in right now, what you're going to see is that idea lab culture starts to kind of go into the private places and it get, it, it, people get scared. And what echo chamber culture kind of rises up and takes over. What you're describing is, I think, people who are so used to being in an echo chamber. And what I and they're just, everyone they know agrees with them or pretends to. They're not even considering that someone might not. Um, now, I feel lucky because I don't, I haven't done that. I, I, I don't like echo chamber culture. I find it extremely boring and stressful. Like, I, I'm not like, I don't want to be like, I have to like, be a contrarian all the time or like be someone everyone's mad at. And I also don't want to have to like pretend to agree with people. So I'm surrounded by, if I'm in, you know, if my friend groups are mostly idea labs, I say something, I'm just waiting for someone to be like, you're being hypocritical and biased and here's why. And you're, you know, this is a straw man argument. And so I'm not going to go to you and assume you think that you agree with me because I'm so used to people disagreeing with me. So when someone is doing that to you, it tells me that they probably are just, that's part of one of their friend criteria of, if you're my friend, you, you agree with me, which means they are enforcing kind of echo chamber culture around them, or they're just so used to being in it. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, there's this, what I call menu phenomenon, which is that if you believe in one thing that your team believes in, you have to believe in everything on the menu that your team believes in. So, so for instance, in the pandemic, if you thought there was the slightest chance that hydroxychloroquine was good for COVID, like, you know, prevents COVID, then it also happens to mean that you're pro-life, which also means you're against the war in Ukraine right now. Like there's all these things that are lumped together that have nothing to do with each other in any intellectual way whatsoever. But one team believes all these things and the other team believes the opposite of all these things. Why did that happen also? That all the smart people kind of quote unquote gang together 
on all the same positions, on all the same ideas, and all the other people gang together on all the opposite ideas. Well, that's game number one. Game number one in political Disney World. There is a narrative, and it includes a. It, it, it's like a. It's like a little. Um, it's a, a little special package that gives you all your opinions in one. One stop shop for all of your opinions. You can you know what you're viewing. By the way, that might change. The party line might change. It might reverse on Russia, or it might reverse on tax policy, or it might reverse on government overreach or whatever. And then you quickly get the message, and everyone gets the message, and now we're all we all think this, right? To me, that's just such a waste of human the human mind. I mean, like think about what an if you actually are truly independent, learning and thinking about all of these issues. I think what a smart, independent, knowledgeable person would say about a lot of them is, "I don't know. I don't have enough info." There, you know, the Obamacare. Right. I, I need to. I need to research that for a month before I have an opinion. And then sometimes they would have an opinion, but it would be nuanced and it would be kind of weird, and and it would definitely not abide by the checklist. That would be very unusual, very huge coincidence if they had the exact same opinion as a tribe, as one of these tribes on guns and abortion and climate change and like you said, COVID and any, any other thing on, 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 on the war. Like before you can have an opinion, you have to know where your, where your team is like COVID the lab leak theory. This is, this, this is new news. This, this theory that maybe came out uh, of the lab instead of the market and you can have opinion, but I think before you, before most people voice their opinion, they have to know, well, wait, which side am I supposed to be on? Is it the lab leak theory or is it the wet market theory? Like what are the, or what does one side believe and what does the other side believe? Game number one has no reverence for individual thinking. You know, it does not say, oh, you're a rogue individual. Great. It says you're a rogue individual, like you're a terrible person. You know, if you disagree with us on any of these checks, every you can disagree agree on every single issue, but you have the wrong opinion on guns, you're a terrible person. Yeah. So game number one basically says, screw the individual. Screw the individual thinking and independent thinking. And that is not valued. That's actually a negative. I mean, it's really it's implicit. No, again, no one says that out loud. No one's actually thinking that. But in, that is the ultimate thing that's going on is it says, it basically stomps on the individual and says, this is, we, this is our collective opinions. And that's that. And that is, again, that's boring to be part of. And you don't learn anything. And it collectively it produces stupidity because no one is thinking think about the lab leak what if we could have just talked about that someone puts out an opinion on that and say well let's examine that let's criticize the idea let's talk about it as opposed to saying that person just said i you know so brett weinstein is you know a famous person who's talked about lab leak early and i remember tweeting something totally unrelated about brett weinstein and it was like a positive thing and someone was like i saw someone else be like tim has jumped the shark he's praising a lab leak person now so think about what that means not only is Brett tarnished forever because he has this view. So that's punishing him. That's making, you know, no one's going to want to, no one wants that for themselves. Right. It's labeling him on a team. But it's also now labeling me. Tim has jumped the shark. It's punishing me for associating with him, for praising him. So it's basically this guilt by association. Meanwhile, what does that do to discourse? Is anyone in their right mind going to go talk about the lab leak thing now? No, it's just not worth it for most people. Unless you're like a Glenn Greenwald, like, you know, you're super disagreeable. And most people just aren't like that. And so they're going to shut up and think, and then other people are going to think, well, if everyone thinks lab leak hypothesis is an awful thing for awful people, it must be, it must be racist. Meanwhile, how much like lost time did we have there when we could have been discussing this thing and discussing like our vi virology and epidemiology policies, which are really important for the future. I mean, there's it's a big, scary thing, virology. And like, instead of actually having any discussion, it just silences discussion when you have that kind of checklist.
Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. If you think about it, the stakes are really high, right? Whether or not the lab leak theory is true, knowing the answer helps us prevent the next 5 million deaths that come from some you know, leaked or not leaked virus. So it's really important that we not be political. And you have this idea spectrum where you describe, you know, we can either think like a scientist, think like a sports fan, think like an attorney, or think like a zealot. And Think like a scientist, you describe this intellectual culture of an idea lab where you could pull together disparate ideas, 
form a hypothesis, figure out how to test the hypothesis, and so on, all the way down to thinking like a zealot where you must believe this or else. And, you know, this is kind of the problem. And then, you know, you say this is a self-help for societies, but it's really self-help for individuals. It's both. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's nice to say this is self-help for societies because we, we're all we're all kind of fine saying something's wrong with society, but no one wants to think there's something wrong with themselves. But ultimately this is a self-help for people about how to be more aware of this style of thinking that has taken over society and so that you could rid yourself of this potential disease. What's important to emphasize here is like, there's so much of the, like I said, in political Disney world, the message is always the same. We are perfect and right and they are bad, this tribal thing. It, this, is, this is a them problem. But the thing about that ladder you just described that I talk about, you know, that different ways of thinking is it's not like there's the good people on the high rungs of the ladder and the bad people on the lower. It's not, that's not true, actually. We all go up and down this ladder. We all have, are susceptible to this. This is something that is a problem for every person in different areas. Some people are better at it than others. And some, some areas of your thinking will be, you'll be just great at being very kind of, um, uh, evidence-based and humble. And, and then others, you just find yourself with this kind of like your ego is involved and you have this unearned conviction and you hate, you hate when someone argues with you, you get really angry when you're, when you're talking about a certain thing. And it's like, this is a problem for all humans. It just, I think it makes it hopefully easier for people to look in the mirror because no one is saying that you're one of the bad people. It's saying you're one of the human people that, you know, we all do this stuff. Echo right. chamber culture. You know, I love to talk about idea lab culture, but I've been part of many echo chambers. I've probably enforced echo chamber on someone somewhere. I'm, I can almost guarantee I've been someone at a dinner table where people are like, don't bring this topic up in front of Tim. He's going to flip out. That's me enforcing an echo chamber on that dinner table. I'm sure I've been that person. So it's, yeah, it's self-awareness is I think what, what is, is, is a good starting place you have this top down way of describing like there's these type of people and this is the sort of intellectual culture we, we could aspire to. And again, you say this for societies, but as an individual, I should be aware, Hey, am I thinking like a sports fan, one team or the other? Am I thinking like a zealot? Like I believe this and you should be silenced if you don't believe it. Or am I thinking like a scientist where I pull things apart? Like it's very much awareness combined with remedy. This self-help idea is very important. There's this other thing I feel that's been going on though, which is that the extreme social justice fundamentalism, you know, you described the sixties where we saw a, a big split, you know, on issues like civil rights, but I feel there was a, a, a slight difference where yes, there was a split that seems almost as big as, as it is now, but the split wasn't this exact same. Like civil rights was about equality of opportunity and let everybody have the opportunity to drink out of the same water fountain, to go to the same schools, to vote, you know, all of these things. But now I feel like, like you described it before as almost like a reverse racism thing. I feel like people are insisting on equality of outcome. Like it's not good enough that everyone has the opportunity, equal opportunity to work at Google. It's that everyone, there needs to be equal outcome. 50% of Google needs to be men. 50% of Google needs to be women. And then if you throw in this, ideology called intersectionalism. Okay. Of the women, some need to be this sexual preference. Some need to be this ethnic background and on and on. Like the, the weakest voice should have more rights than the historically strongest voices. And I feel like that extreme starts to border on insanity. <laughs> 
But they don't say we're, we, we care about equality of outcome and not equality of opportunity. What this particular narrative, this ideology, what it says is it's, its worldview is so simple that it says there's only one reason that there's ever a disparity like that, and it's discrimination. Therefore, if there were equality of opportunity, then there would be equality of outcome. And the fact that there is not is evidence that there's not equality of opportunity, which is, again, that's that's very one-dimensional way to look at something. So they're, they ultimately you're arguing for equality of outcome, but because they believe that that they're one in the same. And of course, they're not one in the same. It, it, it's just, it, it's, you know, you look, all you have to do is look at like white Americans of different ethnic backgrounds. You know how much, you know, uh, Russian Americans out-earn Polish Americans who out-earn English Americans who out-earn French Americans, for example. Suddenly there, I mean, like, why would we ever expect that every white ethnicity earned exactly the same, right? We would never think that. Of course, it would just be a huge, and why, why do those earn differently? It's not discrimination, right? It is, what are they, cultural values? It's different interests, different feelings about ambition, different feelings about what makes success, uh, different feelings about achievement in school and how much it matters, about how much family matters versus career, right? There's just a million reasons, just culturally. Where, where those groups would end up with different outcomes. But as soon as you say that, you know, white Americans in this industry out-earn black Americans, you can't apply that same nuanced, obvious kind of complex reasoning. You have to say, according to this group, that is discrimination, period. No more discussion. There's no other thing that could be causing it. And it's just unnecessary. Like, at Google, like, there is a lot, I mean, look, there's a lot of reasons here, but there's a lot of evidence, a lot of research done. This is this is not like new research that on average, men are more interested in professions that involve things and women are more interested in professions that involve people. In fact, some of the research shows that women who are qualified to be top engineers at Google have more options than men who are qualified to be top engineers at Google because they tend to also have better verbal skills. So they can go to a lot of industries when the men more likely who are qualified there they're not gonna be as good at other industries. Right? So there's just so many reasons. And when you learn about them all, you don't end up more of a misogynist. You end up like appreciating the value of gender diversity more because you're like, wow, like, you know, there's there's different interests, there's different things. And of course, this also applies broadly. It's not, you can't tell you anything about any one person. So again, when you're just grown up reasoning here, I'm not like, this is just basic 101 gross grown up reasoning that societies are complex. People are complex, men and women are complex, and on broad averages, you're gonna see different things and it's gonna have different outcomes. To wipe all of that away and make it all taboo to even talk about, and then say, no, this can only be discrimination, what does that do? A, you don't solve any problems, you don't figure anything out, right? Because you just, no, no, all the real discussion's done. B, you end up furthering this narrative that there is rank discrimination, and that's the only thing, which makes people angry and it's divisive. Why are you making that seem even, you know, there probably is some discrimination. Why are you making it seem worse than it is? Then, you know, and, and then, of course, if you institute the other thing, which is reverse discrimination, so now make sure that it's 50-50, that's just actually not, that is not fair to the, the men who, who you're actually, who are losing their spot because... It doesn't, I mean, uh, Google's welcome to do it, but it, it, it's not like it's a moral good. It's not like it's a moral win. So SJF ideas don't stand up to scrutiny very often. It's very easy, like I just did, to very like quickly break down and be like, this doesn't make sense. This is not how we should be, which is part of the, I think, the reasoning behind why their reaction is not, let's debate this. You'll never hear them say, you know, let's debate this. It's, you're a bad person. No one 
talk to this guy because he has this evil, misogynist, bad person argument. He's a privileged white guy who blah, blah. And so th that's what you do when you don't think you can win the debate, right? If you think you're, you have no chance of winning this game, well, let's, let's make the game illegal in the first place. But, but then there's the question like, so there are very smart, intelligent, and even powerful people who are extreme. And by the way, I'm not saying any of these, like, yeah, maybe Google's hiring practices maybe do need to look at more women. Who, who knows? Like, we're just, we're just using this as an example, but basically the fringes on both sides are maybe one to 5% of the population. And yet we've seen over and over again that 3% of a population could be strong enough to, to basically set the entire narrative of an entire population. And why is it the case that, you know, university presidents are willing to fire professors for saying something that might be very reasonable, might be very understandable. Okay, let's question whether this is a lab leak or not. And yet the, the, those professors get fired who, who question too much. Again, I'm the university presidents are usually, I'm gonna assume that they're either more moderate or diplomatic. I mean, they have to be diplomatic to rise up to where they are because you have to, all, every rung on the career ladder, you have to appease a fairly large population, particularly, you know, in a university environment. So why is it the case that people are getting fired from high level jobs if they say something that's even questionable? So it's, you know, people are like, oh, the mob, you know, the person got fired by the, the mob doesn't fire anyone. I've yet to see the mob call someone into their office and say you're fired. Who, who you know, what's happening is that the, the very, usually the university president, who, if you got them alone, almost definitely, they're going to say, yeah, this is crazy. This person shouldn't be fired, but what can you do? It's just so much easier to not, I don't want to be in the target of the mob. I don't want to be associated with this guy. Let me just fire them and move on. And it's kind of like deal with the devil, kind of a shameful thing. And then we'll forget about it and it's over. Right. And so it's almost like, I, I, I like to point out, there's like this moment of truth here when it's like someone, the professor says something that, that offends the mob. The mob says, fire them. Okay. So that's, that's what's happened so far now. The president or whoever it is, the CEO, whoever has the ability to make this, you know, the Google CEO, whoever, uh, the university president has a moment when they can either defend, not again, not even the, the professor, because maybe they disagree with the professor, defend the basic liberal values of the institution that we have, we have a diversity of ideas here, which is that they, in their head, you know, that's the thing that they're saying, this is the right thing to do. Or did they say, not worth it. Let's fire them and move on. That's the moment of truth. And what's happened so much recently is they've the moment of truth has gone the wrong way. Um, because again, it's easier. It's just easier, right? But what it is, it's just, that is cowardice. And it should be thought of as, as pretty, like, it's pretty, it's harmful because you in that moment are, you, the, the mob doesn't have any power without that moment. And so what you're doing is you're actually giving the mob its power. Is there a solution? Like, are we going to trend in the other direction ever? Because the problem with, we've gone so deep down this trend, like it's suddenly all the university presidents and all the, the media and all the heads of diversity and all these companies are all of a sudden they're going to be ashamed for things they've done because we realize they took it to an extreme. Like, it doesn't seem like, like your book is great as a solution. And again, I would apply it more as a self-help book to the end. Everyone should read it because it's, it's more of a way to think as an individual. And it would be great if everyone thought that way because then society would kind of correct this trend. But realistically, is this trend going to correct itself? Yeah, I mean, the thing about, like, if you're in another country and 
in a different time maybe, and offending the mob will get you lynched and maybe your whole family, right? You'll get killed. That's a hard one to overcome. You need incredible courage. You need people with ridiculous amount of courage to overcome that. We're in a country where- well, the, like that's the, what's that's, happening. That's, you're getting well, killed now because your, okay, your yeah. ability to make an income is like death. Yes, okay, but it's different than getting murdered. And for a, and also, sure, some people genuinely will lose their ability to make an income, but a lot of people just have to deal with a shitstorm for a few days. A lot of people will just have to get criticized and get bullied by the mob, and then they move on to someone else. A lot of things, times the sky doesn't actually fall, right? And and so there's a huge difference between the hard cudgel of you know murder and what this, what the mob has here, which is a soft cudgel of kind of social fear. And they rely on widespread social fear. And as soon as the, the thing about that is that it's kind of a house of cards and, you know, a, a few people start standing up and very quickly, it can be kind of just like you can have like a, spir a downward spiral of cowardice where everyone's kind of copying each other's cowardice. You can have an upward spiral of courage. You can have people start to copy each other's courage and say, well, you know what, they did it and they did it. You know, I even saw, you know, one of the worst cancel stories is, you know, James Bennett at the New York Times, he's the op-ed writer, op-ed editor, and he gets fired for publishing an op-ed that, you know, half the country agreed with, but it offended the staff at the New York Times. Right, he got fired. The editor got fired for publishing. Yeah. Right. Even though 150 million people were fine with it. And, and, and his point, he first tried to defend his decision to publish it. He said, I disagree with the op-ed, but if we're only publishing things that people like me and probably you agree with, then we're not much of a newspaper, right? He was basically saying we have to be an idea lab, in other words. Then when the mob reached a fever pitch, changed his tune entirely, said this was a huge mistake, we shouldn't have done it, and I'm going to resign. And, you know, he got fired, or whatever it was. So you could say, okay, that's an example of, like, the, the leadership at the New York Times had a moment of truth. They know that this is the worst decision to fire this guy. It's like, it's so the antithesis of what the New York Times is supposed to be, but they do it anyway. But now flash a couple years later, just recently, the Washington Post published an article where someone was talking about the James Bennett thing. And they said, you know what? It was wrong and we should have said it then and we didn't because we were scared and we're saying it now. Boom, that, whoa, courage, right? And it doesn't take too many of those because no one wants to feel like a coward. Right. So if everyone, if other, if, if Washington Post is saying that, maybe now the LA Times is going to say, you know what? We also should have said something. It can very quickly spiral the other way. So I think actually I would be, I would be scared if I were the mob because I'm thinking we don't have the hard cudgel of violence. We, we, we're relying on this fear and that could crumble pretty quickly if people start getting courageous. So yeah, I, I feel optimistic actually. You know, Tim, I wish I'm usually an optimistic person. This stuff scares me, particularly, you know, wait till your kid, your new newborn gets older, like the kind of arguments I have in my house. And by the way, I don't really argue with my kids. I let them say their thing and I try to be as quiet as possible. But when you hear over and over again, silence is violence. You know, if you don't believe this, then you're that. And depending on whatever the argument of the day is, whether 10-year-old girls should be allowed to get penises or an issue whether you know one war is better than another war or F the police everywhere. These are the kind of arguments that come up with people who are on the front lines of, the, of this kind of fundamentalism. And it's hard to look at nuanced positions when the common phrase is silence is violence or even you know nuance is violence. But I think your book, which is called What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. This is a great book, which not only describes what's going on, but looks at the history of, the, of ideas in the past hundred years or more. You have great graphics describing everything, great essays and chapters describing everything. 
This is really a must-read book about what's happening in our society right now. I encourage everyone to read it, but also I encourage everyone to read your blog, Wait But Why. I, I'm an avid reader. You have great posts, by the way, about the nature of time. Like, you know, like you're, you're one, how do you, you know, you have a hundred blocks in a day. How do you use them? Or you're, you're, you start off this book actually with kind of a, a, a you know, your thoughts about the history of the human race, where if you divide it into a thousand pages, pages one through 999 sort of look the same. And then the final page is like huge differences. And you have a really good sense about how to describe time in different situations. Like, oh, we might have only, you know, 10 more Thanksgivings left with our parents and whatever. So, so I encourage everybody to, to read your blog. It's filled with so many fascinating topics where you've done a deep dive, but most importantly, read this book, What's Our Problem? A self-help book for societies, which I really, again, do feel this has been like a self-help book for me. And it's a, it's a good reminder when I get too much of a sports fan or an attorney or a zealot. And it brings me back to my, I, what I feel are my idea lab roots. So thanks for coming on the podcast. You don't know this, but I've been a huge fan of your blog for since you started it. Thanks again for, for reaching out and, and wanting to come on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks James. And I, by the way, you know, when I was starting this blog, you were one of like, I was listening to you and Tim Ferriss a lot. And, you know, I think part of it is, you know, you're kind of like very, um, frank upfront style where you're just openly a, a human and you're just, just being yourself flagrantly. And I thought that was inspiring. And I think it probably helped me encourage me to do that. So I also appreciate you and, you know, with the kind of work you do. Oh, thanks, Tim. I, I appreciate it. And I will say it's often gotten me into a lot of trouble too, just being myself. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's also why you have a lot of listeners though, because people like a rogue individual, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Tim. And, and hopefully come on the podcast again. I'd love to talk more about all this stuff. Anytime. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people.